1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Performing Arts podcast, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd, and today I'm talking with Brian Kulik about his book, The Secret Life of Theater on the Nature and Function of Theatrical Representation. Brian, welcome to the program. Oh, uh, thank you. It's so nice to be here with you. I'd love to know a little bit about kind of how you first got involved with the theater. Were you like a kid who went to theater camp and that kind of thing, or did it come later on? You know, I wish it did, but, uh, actually,
1: um, when I, I was interested in film when I was young and when I, I went to UCLA as an undergraduate and, uh, uh, the easiest way to get into the film program was to start in the theater program and then just transfer over. So that's what I did. But I fell in love with theater, so I just decided to stay and never never transferred over. Uh, uh, and um, so that's, that's basically how it happened. I had a great group of teachers and extraordinary classmates, and it just seemed like a world that you would never want to leave. So I didn't.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely found when I was in, you teach at Columbia where I went to grad school and and I definitely found that the theater kids were, as a whole, a lot more interesting, at least to me, than <laughs> the film kids that I interacted with were. So I don't know if you had the same experience.
1: Well, I was, you know, ironically, many of my friends who were in the theater program went on to quite, you know, amazing careers in film and television. So... And I may be the only theater guy or a handful of us stayed in theater, but friends of mine, you know, did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Lethal Weapon. Uh, my classmate was Tim Robbins. So, so, uh, so it was an interesting, you could always bop over to the film program and do something and then bop back if you wanted.
0: it. That's a, that's a pretty good list. Um, what inspired you to write this book, uh, The Secret Life of Theater? You know, uh,
1: I th- A couple things. I think the big thing was that when you start doing theater outside of school, you sort of move away from the why of theater and you're really dealing a lot with the how, you know, how do I make this work? You know, how do I get this actor to do this? How do I get the producer to give me more money? How do I get an audience to pay attention? And when you sit down and talk to other colleagues, you talk about how, how are we gonna make this happen? And it was how, 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 how all the way down. And, uh, so when I, uh, and then I was really involved with the how of things, I ran a theater called classic stage company for a period of time. And that was how, you know, all capital letters with an exclamation point at the end of it and like 10 question marks afterwards. And so after doing that for like 14 years, I just thought, you know, I would like to take some time off and get back to the why of theater, you know, um, and reconnect with what this thing is that I've devoted an enormous chunk of my life to. Um, and uh, and that sort of w- happened simultaneous to reading, rereading a wonderful short story by uh, the South American uh, author, Argentinian author, uh, Borges, um, a little story called Avaroísís Search, Alvaris, uh was the translator of um, the poetics in in, in um, f- uh, for f- in, uh, in into
0: Arabic, right?
1: Into Arabic, yes. Thank yeah. you. And um, and you know they didn't have a theater tradition. They had a great poetry tradition at that point in time, but no no theater. Theater wouldn't be for several hundred years after Averroes. So when he got to the terms. Um, and this is true, this isn't made up by Borges. When he got to the terms comedy and tragedy, he had no conception of what that meant. And the short story tries to give this it takes place the day that Arois has to translate these two words. And and the and the story gives him over the course of one day three huge hints. At what they might mean, uh, and those three hints were like rabbit holes of that you could sort of plunge down as a theater person, and, and they really got to these big why questions of uh, you know of, of theater, and so the combination of exhaustion and then uh, being uh, reconnecting with this Borges short story sort of was the magic. Um, uh, alchemy that led to the mm-hmm. led to me wanting to sit down and try to write something.
0: And I hope this question doesn't seem like too much of like a reading comprehension quiz. But but uh, what what are the three uh, examples that he encounters that are kind of hints for what you know what comedy and tragedy might? Oh, they're have been. great.
1: They're, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. The first is that Arois looks out his window and he sees children playing and the children are, are interestingly enough they're, they're 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 reenacting the morning prayer so one child is 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 performing the turret one child is performing the the role of the worshipper and one child is performing the role of the of the person who's reciting the morning prayer and um,
0: Uh, The turret had to have been the little brother. I gotta think. No one wants to be the turret for goodness' sake, right?
1: Uh, And so the so that was the first. That's the first uh, clue. And the second clue, which is my favorite of the of the clues, is he goes to a party where someone has just returned from China, and the traveler is talking about this amazing building that he was in, this this lacquered house, uh, where basically, as he describes it, you realize this is a theater. He was in a theater. He was watching a a play. Although, again, the language and the words, they have no language or words for this phenomenon. Um, And one of the guests is very confused. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me, I'm paraphrasing of course, "Uh, are you trying to tell me that it takes the, the Chinese people 40 individuals to tell a story because he talks about musicians and and -hmm. people who perform things and and the and the traveler says uh yes it took 40 people to tell that story and and the the host of the party says well we are far superior because it only takes one person to tell our stories and i thought that that really was what started me thinking which is you know why do we need if we can tell a story, if we can sit around a campfire and tell a story, why do we need three, four, forty people? Why do we need it? What do we gain when we move from telling something to showing something? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what happens in that process? And then the last clue um, in the in the sh- short story has to do with the recounting of a very famous. Um, Uh, story about uh, three uh, uh, religious seekers, four religious seekers, who go to sleep in a cave and wake up a hundred years later and don't realize it eventually. Uh, And that obviously has echoes to Plato's cave, although the way Borges sort of turns the whole thing on its head. And those are his big three clues.
0: It's so funny. I feel like that idea that what we do in theater is we tell stories has become axiomatic and maybe even cliched, but it's actually at a a fundamental level kind of just literally wrong. Like we literally do not. I mean, you know, some faith healer by Brian Friel, you know, tells a story, but most plays are, are up to something else. Right.
1: Well, I think the, you know, obviously, you know, there are many, I think, languages that happen. When you're watching a theater piece or experiencing, mm-hmm. let's say, experiencing theater piece, and there certainly is language, you know, is dialogue, is, and there is, and and out of that and the and the conflicts of that comes comes a story. But there's a whole lot of other stuff, um, other languages, the language of the body, language of tone, uh, language of movement. Um, that tell other kinds of stories and uh, uh, in, in, in have different registers of meaning.
0: One of the other things that just occurred to me hearing you kind of recount that Borges story is just how bizarre it is that theater is an art form that has died out. As many times as it has, you know, <laughs> that even in the Western tradition, even Western Europe, you know, there are periods of hundreds of years at a time where there aren't really plays, um, which is so bizarre because it always it always strikes me as the, sort of the most intuitive art form. I mean, you know, little kids do a form of theater all the time, so it's it, it's it's always struck me as kind of totally weird that um, that it does die out for many, many different periods in world history.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And but what's great about it is it's really cheap to do, to make when you consider yeah. the other media, you know, it's very easy to just, you know, get, a you know, as, as was it, uh, Julie Garland and Mickey Rooney get a barn and put on a show. Um, but there, there is a, uh, I think that's also one of the beauties of theater, which is that you constantly have to recreate it. Um, so greek theater dies out and then the italian renaissance wants to recreate it and they end up making opera instead uh so there's something beautiful about you know we don't know uh, people say they know how shakespeare was done and we have the globe theater now and we know some things about how shakespeare is done but we don't really you know, know what the scale of the acting was what the size of it was you know how hammy you know or how real it was mm-hmm. um we don't know how it was really spoken there are no rules handed down we've intuited rules uh and so we have to we have to make them up all over again and there's something beautiful about that part of the equation of this collaboration over time between what was and what we are now and in some ways to me that's one of the most exciting things about theater there are other cultures who who figured this out much faster and tried to you know really take care of tradition so when you look at the extraordinary theater you know no theater or kabuki theater you're talking about a tradition that's unbroken you know the link is unbroken Mm -hmm. for for Quite a long period of time, uh, but as a result of that, th- some of that theater's really has been tied to a kind of tradition that it can't quite escape from. Whereas in the West, uh, because of our short attention spans and things like <laughs> that, uh, we constantly periodic to, attacks by Puritans, etc. Yes, yes, little things like that, little <laughs> plagues, little things like that. Um, uh-huh. And then, as a result of that, you know, we get to constantly reinvent Shakespeare or reinvent the Greeks, or reinvent Chekhov. Uh, and I, I think that's that's also part of the fun of it, if that makes any sense.
0: And Shakespeare seemed to have a, a really keen sense of the kind of pathos of that situation, of kind of constantly creating something that is temporary and will be gone by the end of the, you know, by midnight. Um, oh, yeah. I, I feel like that's all over his play. I mean, I'm thinking of the last speech in The Tempest, but you could you could find it, you know, in constant plays of his completely
1: completely and that's one of the beautiful things i think about the tempest and also ironically in the in the borges short story which is the failure of art the fact that how hard it is to sustain an illusion that's the thing that breaks prospero's heart is mm-hmm. you know he put on a, a mask which shakespeare was never a big fan of but he puts on a mask for his his son-in-law and daughter and it collapses you know and that's where he gives the great speech about you know we are nothing more than you know than dreams again i'm paraphrasing but uh yeah um and this idea that theater you know constantly collapses fails is actually part of what's spectacular about it Um, You know, when you watch a film, a film is an interesting phenomenon, something in relationship to sound and light and what light does in a dark room and, you know, and you can fall down the rabbit hole of a film and never pull yourself out until the film is over. Um, That doesn't necessarily happen in theater. In theater your consciousness is constantly being thrown backwards and forwards it's in the it's in the event and then the idiot in front of you moves their head or coughs and then mm-hmm. suddenly you're, you're not in Julius Caesar but you're in a over refrigerated uh, a theater um, you know uh, way too far in the back and it takes you a while to reorient yourself but that respiratory that sort of um, that, that kind of, uh, it's almost like an in and out, uh, like tides being drawn into the theater and then being thrown out of it um, creates a very interesting kind of consciousness that I think is also a very important byproduct of what theater does and why theater is, mm-hmm. although traffics in many of the same aspects as film storytelling, is a radically different, phenomenologically different experience as a mm-hmm. viewer
0: and that that experience of kind of following a story but not being totally sucked in is really central to what brecht is up to oh. um you know in the in the 20th century and and you kind of draw a connection between brecht's kind of awareness of the the sort of uh shoddiness of theatrical representation and and shakespeare's which you've already touched on a little bit how what do you see being the kind of similarities between how Brecht and Shakespeare view theater and and what are the differences. I mean there obviously you know Shakespeare's not a Marxist but but well, I, know, I imagine that there are more uh women of Athens you might think that he was a Marxist for a right, moment. Right. It was Marx's
1: favorite play. But uh um gosh that's a wonderful and huge question. I mean I think one of the things uh, Brecht uh did with a lot of help from the russians was really kind of for the first time although shakespeare was doing it that he articulated what what the renaissance and what the greek theater was doing which is which is this which is that you're in the story and then you're out of the story he calls this the alienation effect you know you're you're in it and then you're thrown out and he really loves this idea of being thrown out because in the moment you're thrown out You become critical of what you've just seen. And most of, you know, and so most of our days, we're in something. We're in work. We're in a game. Uh, We're in our television show. We're in, 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 in. And something has to happen. You know, we're in our cars, we're driving, and then we get into a wreck and we're thrown out of our our driving state, if this makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So, Brett was really fascinated with these road bumps with these with that that sort of slowed you down or made you stop and and made you think and in that process what starts to happen is you you start to realize how uh, in a play a play is a construction uh and literally it's it's flats and scenery um but reality new york city is a construction it isn't you know, this is the distinction that Heidegger makes between the earth and the world. The world is a construction; the earth is the earth. The world sits on top of the earth and makes us forget about the earth, and fools us into thinking it's a priori. So, i.e., there's always been kings. There's there's always been taxation. There's always been these things, um, and 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 we're just in that world. But if we get thrown out for a moment, and 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 look at it differently, we start to see this, the seams, you know, in the flats on theater, we start to see the seams of, of our own reality, which doesn't have to be the way we were taught in elementary school, that that's maybe the way they would like the world to work. But that's not necessarily the only way or an a priori or a natural way. Um, And if something can be deconstructed, that means it can be reconstructed. And so I think when you ask what's the difference between Shakespeare and Brecht, they're both wildly aware of the fragility of, of our reality, how easily it can, and Shakespeare's very nervous about that. He's very nervous right. about the idea of our world collapsing. Uh, Brecht is like, bring it, man, just do it. <laughs> because we'll build something better we'll build something even better out of that yeah Um, and so both are aware of the fragility and uh of our uh mutually agreed reality Uh, one wants to preserve it protect it enhance it make it better and remind us how precious and fragile it actually is how easily and how quickly it can be broken that's shakespeare Mm -hmm. and breck says where's the hammer give it to me right now let's get to Mm -hmm. work guys
0: yeah. Um, I I heard a story. This is like slightly off topic, but I, mm-hmm. I heard a story a while ago in an interview with somebody who was Saul Bellow's assistant towards the end <laughs> of his life. And it was like a beautiful spring day in Chicago and he was driving Saul Bellow around and they kind of passed the, you know, the kind of quad at, at U Chicago. Um and Bellow had him pull over and he, he rolled down his window and he just yelled Death, Death, <laughs> Death <laughs> and the assistant said, you know, why did you just do that? And he goes, I just thought someone should remind them. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, that's, that, cool. that's, that's part of what Shakespeare's up to, I think. It's yeah. just kind of, okay. you know, at any moment, like there's, I mean, obviously there's so much death in the plays themselves, but also just like this life thing that you think is so solid is actually, you know, completely topsy-turvy and, you know, com- can change on a dime at any moment.
1: Totally. Uh, you know, one of the things, one of Breck's famous quotes is sometimes you have to say no so loudly that the audience stands up and screams, yes, God damn it. You know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so I think, you know, the negativity or, or negation in the theater is actually a, a tremendously powerful tool um, for change, for progress.
0: Part of what you do in the book is you kind of take us on a very quick tour of theater history and you kind of look at some key moments in in kind of classic plays in the western canon but you focus less on dialogue than you do on kind of stage directions and and specific physical moments in these plays why did you want to draw our attention to those moments
1: Well, you know, I'm a director by trade. So, of course, I'm going to be slightly sometimes as interested in the stage directions uh, as I am in the dialogue. Uh, And um, I always feel like stage directions get short shrift. You know, so when I was working on that essay, I thought, could you tell the history of theater in, I don't know, what, what it was like, like nine and a half or nine nine stage directions? Could you find nine stage directions that told you everything you needed to know about what theater can do? Um, and so I started, you know, some of those moments I've had the great opportunity to stage, some of them I've had the great opportunity to teach, and some of them I just always wanted to tackle or wanted to, 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 to try uh, my hand at it are my mind at understanding. Um, and so what happens? I mean, that it goes back to something that we we're talking about earlier, which is that theater is made up of many languages. Um, uh, there's, there are languages that we're not even we are aware of, but we don't really call them languages. There's the language of proximity. Um, which is how close we allow ourselves to be in relationship with one another, which is based on how much we trust one another. Uh, so, you know, and people have built into them a natural sense of proximity. You know, it's like, I'm not supposed to get any closer than this unless I want to get punched or kissed, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and we just, net, we all go five and a half feet. We just do that. We just go five and a half feet, you know, uh, and especially in the age of COVID, we're even more aware of, of, of proximity. So that suddenly when you're dealing with something like Romeo and Juliet, where Romeo's down on the ground and Juliet's up above, you're dealing with the language of proximity and you're dealing with a very interesting aspect of proximity, which is verticality. Um, what does it mean to be down below? What does it mean to be up above? Why do we image... Um, The object of our adoration, whether it's a woman or a guy, why are they up in a balcony and like, and why is God up in the heavens? Why do we keep, you know, putting love? Not it's not only out of our reach, but above our reach. Mm -hmm. Um, Where is, you know, what is that? Me, it means something to us. It, it 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 conjures something to us. And so when we see that sort of trope where you see lovers and they're running, and there is a great distance between them, and then find the music soaring, and they finally embrace and kiss, that's a that's a that is a proximal sentence, uh, which says something to us without dialogue without words, if that makes sense, and Mm -hmm. impacts on us, you know, in the same way as a piece of dialogue would. So the impulse to uh, talk about stage directions was to say, there are all these other languages, language of time, language of space, proximity, um, silence, um, you know, uh, all of these little things that we are also... We speak. We speak many more languages than we actually think we do. Mm-hmm. Or intuit many more languages than we think we do.
0: And that kind of spatial language feels like one of the kind of essential tools of theater that almost no other art form uses in the same way. I mean, maybe dance or something like that. But it that, that's really pretty central to what makes theater theater, probably.
1: It It definitely... I mean, the fact that, that uh, you know space is dead until you move. Do do you know what I'm saying? In other words, Mm -hmm. space is flat uh, until the human body starts moving. And then suddenly it comes to life in all sorts of ways. Um, You know, uh, and it's much, you know, time and space. One of the things that theater teaches us is that they are incredibly relative, you know, as Einstein says, you know, that, that, you know, Happy Days and Macbeth are the same amount of clock time. If if you do Macbeth right and you do uh, Happy Days right, they should clock in at about ninety minutes each. Um, that's clock time, but experiential time, felt time. Oh my goodness! You know, uh, uh, Macbeth is a roller coaster ride, and Happy Days is this sort of infinite, endless experience so suddenly it's no longer time but duration uh that 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 changes and so uh you certainly you can have that feeling in a in a film as well there's there's no reason why you why you can't but but um but the the concrete palpable the moment when the three sisters pose for a for a photograph and we've all had this experience where it takes the photographer way too long to snap the picture and in that moment time becomes manifest we feel time as a palpable concrete thing it comes out of the shadows where it's been hiding and you suddenly get a glimpse of it and you go oh my god there's this there's this phenomenon called time and it's present we just keep we're so in it we keep forgetting about it Mm-hmm. Um, and so theater helps you reconnect um, uh, with those 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 moments. If that makes if that makes sense, it reconnects you to these things that, in the rush of life, are in the in the in are uh, we tend to forget. You know the the habits that we form um, dull us from the kind of extraordinary wonder of what it means to actually be alive. And so part of these different languages that theater speaks, part of what they're trying to do is wake you up, remind Mm -hmm. you for a
0: moment about these wondrous aspects of existence. And you point out that part of how theater does that is by just being you know so much more stripped down even in a very lush you know lavishly detailed production of like the, a doll's house or something it's still going to be much less uh cluttered than, than an actual living room you know it's a it, theater is always sort of a a pared down representation of reality and that process of selecting details and kind of highlighting them is part of what charges them with meaning right
1: oh, yeah, everything means more because there's less on the stage uh, oftentimes. When I was going to school, when I was back at UCLA and I was contemplating the difference between going to film and theater, the uh, the critic David Denby wrote a very famous article for the New York magazine called Why I Hate Theater. And I read it and I went, oh, my God, this is exa- – I- I should write an article saying why I love theater. And I would use all of David Denby's examples because what he hated was exactly what I love. Like, for instance, Mm -hmm. he said, you know, he can't stand uh, uh, Willie Loman and and Death of a Salesman because he's got those two suitcases. He's carrying those two suitcases. And you never get to see what's inside the suitcases. You never get to know what Willie Loman is selling because what he's selling are two metaphors. If you opened up the suitcase, it would just be a metaphor. It's a metaphor for – and it's just too much. It's just too much for David Denby. He doesn't Mm -hmm. like when when a door is more than a door or a suitcase is more than a suitcase. Um, And the the extraordinary thing about film is – Film domesticates everything in the same way that we domesticate many of the things out of habit. So doors, suitcases, books, windows, they they just become things, right? But in the theater, if you only have a door, oh my goodness, suddenly that door is very important. It starts to mean more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the beauties about when you're dealing with certain writers like Brecht, like Moliere, like Shakespeare, they choose... These elements, and that's the only thing. And that letter suddenly becomes a character in of itself. Or, um, if you see what I'm uh, uh, what I'm trying to get at with this, um, yeah, the, the
0: handkerchief in in um, Othello, or yeah. yes,
1: oh my god, that's a great example where suddenly these things just mean more. The red carpet that Agamemnon walks on isn't a carpet when it's rolled out. It's it suddenly is it the blood of all the men that was spilt, you know, from the time that he was at Troy, is it, is it going, is it the, a a premonition of the blood that of his own body that's about to be spilt uh, moments from now when his wife stabs him or or actually hacks him apart with a, with an ax. Um, So things in the theater uh, uh, because of the stripped down nature have the opportunity to stand out um, be ecstatic in a way, in the oldest form of that word, they, mm-hmm. they they stand outside, and you're able to suddenly they start to 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 just simply mean more than what they do in in our day to day life.
0: That sense of a symbol having multiple meanings seems to be something that was just kind of occurred very naturally to a lot of ancient civilizations. You know, you you point out ancient Greece, but I think you could probably say it's the same. A- thing about ancient Egyptian art and if we had more traces of their theater maybe that would be true of their theater that 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 feeling of you know it's not it's not just a metaphor where one thing is standing in for something else but it's it's this sort of rich combination of kind of bundled meanings right oh yeah totally you know I always feel like a metaphor is like a
1: magician's hat trick uh-huh. it's a hat. No, it's a dove. You know, it's it's always about changing one thing into another thing, and it's there's a lot of fun with metaphor, and and the time signature of metaphor is very quick. It's this, and now it's that. But a symbol sort of just sits there as a big question mark, and it says, "Just try, just try to unpack me." Yeah. Um, and some symbols are so rich that they are bottomless. You can't you can't get to the bottom of them. Uh, Freud called those these kinds of symbols um overdetermined uh uh that that you could take this this symbol to uh uh all these different uh, uh psychoanalysts and they would give you a different interpretation of it it's just too too rich mm-hmm. as a result of it so yeah the symbol is a, is an amazingly powerful thing and it and, and then like a sindosh it can stand in a symbol can be so strong that that it can create an entire world you can just have a sink uh, you know, or a stove, and suddenly your mind will make the kitchen, right? That's another thing that film, that that's one of the fundamental differences between how film is usually done and how theater works, is we don't need necessarily to have the entire kitchen to... And it's actually maybe slightly more interesting if there's one symbol, one, one element that creates the entire world and we collaborate in that creation. That's where I think you start to get to the real magic of theater. Theater is an interesting thing it keys into something that we just do as human beings that is so profound, you know. When you you know Vygotsky the the uh, neuro, the Russian great Russian neurologist says this, you know, children when they're learning language, you know, a stick is a stick is a stick is a stick. It takes a long time for a kid to learn that this stick Um, has a name and that name is stick and every time and that's what it is and that's the way it's going to be but then at a certain age they go this stick can be a horse and then suddenly oh my god you know now you're in the realm of metaphor now you're in the realm of invention you know where we can take one thing and turn it into something else and so when you deal with certain kinds of theater whether it's chinese theater or whether it's uh, theater complicité. One of the things that happens is because that kind of theater is metaphoric, the stick is a horse. It returns you to that amazing moment uh, when you're six years old or five years old, or I don't know how old you are when you make that (laughs) epistemological leap, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's an amazing moment. And you can still get an adrenaline rush. Even I do as a, as an altacocker, as a 60 year old, you know, when, when I'm asked, to take to see it overturned on wa and imagine that that's a boat in the ocean mm-hmm. uh, and i just get as happy as can be i just get giddy over being asked to participate in making that meaning.
0: i remember i saw a show once where there was a line i wish i i wish i remembered who put this who, who put the show up but there's a line where somebody held up, uh, you know, a, a pointer finger and a thumb and said, this whole show, we've been pretending this is a gun. And then they extended their <laughs> middle finger as well. And they said, this is a gun. <laughs> this is a totally thrilling moment of like, you know, letting us letting us in on the joke of, you know, yes, we're we're pretending that something isn't what it is. But then also being like, OK, now will, will you accept now that, you know, you know, now that we've all set out in the open that we're just pretending will you still go along with this story? And and the audience was completely there for it. It was, it was yeah, a, it's a magical how moment. How we, we do that, you know, like
1: if you see like, you know, if you do an experiment, let's say we did this at CSC once where we were doing Romeo and Juliet, and this has been done before. We, we didn't come up with this, but, but where we asked two extraordinary actors, um, uh, Judith Roberts and Austin Pendleton to play Romeo and Juliet. And mm, I think they might, both are probably in their 70s. And so there's a, there's a moment, obviously, when, you, when, when, when that starts, when they start reading, where you go, okay, mm, they're in their 70s and they're playing Romeo and Juliet. And about four minutes in, that disappears and you're just watching Austin fall in love with mm-hmm. Um And that's, you know, I mean, my God, you know, that's how adaptable... The human imagination is. And it's that adaptability that will hopefully save us. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our ability to see more, read more um, into things than what is presented to us, make more out of what we're seeing, um, transform it, um, the alchemy of our imaginations. If anything's
0: going to save us, it's going to be that. Mm-hmm. At Evernorth Health Services, a, a slight detour just into kind of like some theater history that I ha- hadn't occurred to me until I read your book, but you mentioned Shakespeare's influence from Italian Renaissance theater, which had never occurred to me. But then once you pointed it out, I was like, Oh, right. Like so many of those plays take place in Italy and in this sort of like fantastic, you know, like unrealistic Venice has no canals. Um, you know version of it and it's like oh right he liked italian plays and so when he wrote plays in imitation of them he set them in italy and used italian names so what what was the kind of the nature of that influence like what does he take from that tradition
1: well i think if i can just uh just uh prior to that question you bring up another question that's also very interesting so let me see if i can do both in one mm-hmm. which is shakespeare loves you know the Globe, right? It calls this theater the Globe. Um, and one of the things Elizabethans were particularly kooky about was they had an opinion about every country. You know, they you would say a country, you know, Romania. They, I don't know if it's called Romania, Macedonia. Macedonia they, they would have an opinion about it, right? So in the land of symbols, you know, places became symbols: Vienna, Venice, Verona. To a, to an Elizabethan, each of those worlds suggested a unique metaphorical world if that if that makes mm-hmm. sense so an Elizabethan knows the difference between venice and verona even though they've never been there but they've read enough short stories and they've heard enough from people who have been there to know that venice is a land of of illusion and deceit and hide and seek and verona is just too darn hot it's just too hot, and and the, something about that sun and the heat and the angle of light makes people kill each other. You know, so so the idea of the place starts to do so much work. Instead of like hiring Santo Loquasto to do a set, you just go Verona, and, and instead of trying to hire John Lee Beatty to do a set, you say you know Bohemia, and 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 the Elizabethan mind does the rest of the work uh, for you. Yeah. Uh, if that makes sense, um, but in terms of you know the interesting thing about uh, you know the this the Italian explosion of theater that happens in the Renaissance is just unprecedented, um, and of course much of this is improvisational, uh, so we don't even have the scripts. You know, Tempest is a play that is most likely stolen from a commedia. Um, uh scenario uh, and um and you know acting companies would have their scenarios their stories and they would they were like bibles you just didn't give them away you held on to them because that was your your livelihood every so often the leaf of one of these you know Bibles would you know blow away and cross the channel and uh, end up in England and Shakespeare would grab it and go I can run with this um so but but the italian influence um storytelling wise uh uh is huge and there and clearly there's something temperamental you know I think I think you're right when you look at the places he sets things uh you know pride of place might go to the italians uh, he certainly you know, uh, uh, is uh, enamored with many, you know, major stories: Romeo and Juliet, Othello, um, et etc., cetera, et cetera, So et cetera. I think as you, is it As You Like It? I think is also originally is uh, comes from an Italian
0: source. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and and what do you feel like? What what kind of like, I don't know, techniques did he learn from that from that tradition? Do you think like what what kind of? I mean. Was it was it plotting? Was it character? What 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 things did he learn from commedia? Well, uh, you know, I think the thing about Shakespeare is that he's,
1: um, you know, the 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 Renaissance had a notion that that he was very good at, which is a, a concept called lively turning. And what this meant was, you take the source material, but you you turn it. You know, um, and so it's not about being original, coming up with your own story. It's about taking a story and flipping it in a way so that, so that, for instance, uh, in Winter's Tale, the source material by uh, Green, um, you know, the Leontes figure actually does go to sleep with his daughter. You know so that's the tragedy of it and shakespeare takes that same story flips it and of course leontes recognizes his daughter and then he's reunited with his wife who's a statue and comes to life that's where shakespeare's invention comes in so so i think what shakespeare is constantly looking for is great raw material to turn mm-hmm. uh, and and so what you get with the italian repertory is you know tremendous iconic moments a guy on the street a girl in a balcony i can run with that you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um or are these, these these sort of you know the idea of the pastoral being in the forest being you know this is this is a, you know a, a italian literature 101 of the renaissance um arcadia is not only a an, an elizabethan trope but it also has the pastoral you know, has its, its genealogy in, um, in the Italians. So, so I think it's, it's that it's that this is all the ingredients that he needs, um, to get things going. And, uh, he finds some of the best ingredients, uh, for his theatrical sauces or meals, um, through these kind of spices from the Italian Mm -hmm. repertoire.
0: I wonder if part of the reason, I mean, it, it, it seems like you're talking about a lot of sort of visual moments. I wonder if part of the reason is because like those are the things that, you know, if you're if you're performing a script where the dialogue is improvised, the stuff you write down is we have to get to this certain set piece at the end of the first act. You know, I wonder if that's if it's sort of an inherently um, you know, visual way of thinking if 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 you're kind of working in that commedia style. Well, yeah.
1: Even, you know, but one of the things because of the nature of how plays were rehearsed during that period of time, no one had a full script. Everybody had their just their role, literally a role, which mm-hmm. had every line and their cue line on it. So no one had in their head the whole script. So they had to go. They had to just before they walked on stage, they needed to look at um, a couple pieces of paper that were posted that told you the order of the scenes in case you got confused. So you didn't walk out when Hamlet is is. Uh, is is uh, um, telling Ophelia to get thee to a nunnery, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern don't just suddenly walk in and want to, you know, invite him to see a play. Um, uh, so so there is this kind of, um, and a lot of plays in the Elizabethan times don't exist uh, anymore, obviously, uh, but we do have these pages. We can sort of reconstruct um, a very famous play at the time called Troy um, based on... The description of you know so and so at the tower, blah 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 blah, and this sort of thing. So so mm-hmm. there's something about the um, the skeleton of of a commedia scenario and the skeleton of an Elizabethan show where you just have these big set pieces and you and 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 you learn the order and then you do them.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the kind of tropes of uh, a certain type of um, contemporary discussion about theater is that everybody wants to kind of pile on Aristotle and and talk about all the things that he misses or, or kind of oversimplifies or something like that. Um, Which I, I understand. I mean, I certainly think he's, he's had his place in the culture long enough, but at the same time, the poetics is just an extraordinarily insightful book. And, and as you know, as, possibly the first work of literary criticism in the Western tradition. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing how many of the things still seem interesting to, to us today. Um, you make a connection. I hadn't really thought about much before between how Aristotle writes about emotion in other works of his and how he writes about theater. Could you kind of talk a bit about the connection between those two parts of his theory? Well, I, I think I can.
1: I mean, uh, that this was a particularly dense part of the book, and I and uh-huh. I wrote the book five
0: years ago. So, you, uh, so Ryan, let me let me kind of lower the stakes for you by just saying you're you're about the fifth person I've asked what is catharsis on this <laughs> show, and no one's been able to really explain it to me to my satisfaction yet. So you know I'll, I'm happy to add another perspective without it being definitive. Okay. Cool. Well. Cool. So so basically, first of all, you know
1: Aristotle, you know his, you know his predecessor, and 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 and. Teacher Plato, um, as we all know, was not a big fan of of uh, of the arts, and nor was he a big fan of emotion, and uh, and really spent a tremendous amount of energy in these Socratic dialogues dinging not only art but also the importance of emotion. And emotion needs to be reined in; it needs to be controlled by logos. You know all of these things, and so one of part of Aristotle's job, I think, he felt was to to like speak up for emotion, and to basically make a very strong argument, which now has been borne out um, in neurobiology, that we don't make decisions based on logic. I mean, logic is a part of it, but the the tipping point is how we feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what Aristotle ultimately is saying is, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater this how you you know how how you feel about something is part of the process of coming to a conclusion Mm -hmm. uh and it is a very important part of it and you can't disentangle thought and feeling they're just they're intertwined in a way that is just impossible if you try to sever them the it dies on the vine so to speak um so 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 as a result of that you know, Aristotle begins to start thinking about, um, you know, how theater works emotionally. And, you know, he comes to the conclusion that a lot of Greek theater, you know, the famous line that he says is that, you, you know, is it, 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 engenders, um, uh, it engenders pity and fear, and that leads to catharsis. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting that those integers, pity, fear, catharsis. Um, why not fear, pity, catharsis? Why is it so important that pity is first and fear follows? Uh, and then how does those two things lead to this idea of catharsis, which is a medical term? Well, it's a term that basically means taking a crap. Uh, um, it, uh, it's about dark matter that is sort of then brought to light. It's about lustration. It's about, and then ultimately about purgation.
0: And that, it, if you think about sort of the, the theory of the humors, right? It's that idea of you you have an excess of black bile or something and you need to get that sort of expelled and then you'll be better. Is that is that yeah. sort of the ballpark yeah. that we're talking about? Yeah, we're talking,
1: yeah, totally, totally. We're talking about the idea that how do you expel all this dark matter that's in you, you know, and catharsis, a purgative, uh, you know, is, is a great way of doing it. And of course, this is a intellectual form of, of, of purgation in this respect. But it seems to me that one of the things that starts to happen is, is that, um, the idea that you see something and engenders pity, and we should not think that pity means sympathy. Sympathy is a word that's not even invented yet. The uh, sympathy, the only time we have an example of sympathy in Greek is, is Plato someone yawns and then and then Socrates wants to yawn and that is called a sympathetic response so the idea mm-hmm. of sympathy doesn't grow beyond the yawn until you get to the <laughs> until you get to the to the renaissance so what you have is pity and pity as it sounds is like I take pity on this lowly person you know I, I I'm better than this person and this poor person is less than me and I pity them because they're less than me um and so 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 when for instance uh, when 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 uh, Priam goes to the tent of achilles and wants to see his son hector that his dead son hector's body if we came into the thing and if we came into the tent we'd go we would probably do something like this we would say um achilles you lost your lover i lost my son there's something between you know we share this mutual loss this is, we, we can sympathize with one another because we have this common denominator of losing someone young that we love. That would maybe be the way that we would argue, please now give me a chance to look at my son. That's not how the Greeks thought about things. Uh, Priam, a king, comes into the tent and says, look at me. I'm a pathetic old man. And the person who was going to defend me, you know... Is dead. I have no one to defend me. You, your father, that lucky son of a bitch, still has you, but I have nothing. Let me see my son. In other words, he's saying, "Pity me, Mm -hmm. take pity on me." He's lowering Uh, himself. Exactly, 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 and that is the way the Greeks. That's the way they can imagine beyond familial ties. The only way they can they can sort of relate to the outsider or someone who's beyond the familial bonds or beyond the tribal bonds is in the form of pity. So, so when a Greek audience member is watching tragedy, they are not sympathizing or empathizing, which is another word, which is, which is even is sounds as old as sympathy, but empathy is a ninth is a 20th century conception. It's a word that's invented in the 20th century for expressionist art. So the Greek would pity a Renaissance person would be sympathetic, you know, blah, 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 blah. But Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm watching Oedipus and I pity him. I feel superior to him. I feel bad for him, but I'm not him. I'm above him. But the next thing I might feel is, holy moly, I could become him. Fear. The fear suddenly, comes into this. And that fear that I could be that person is huge. And mm-hmm. this is the problem is how do I, now that that fear is in me, it's a virus. It's attacking my whole sense of self and self-reliance. How do I get rid of this fear that's suddenly in me? I was impenetrable. I was fine until I came to the stupid play. Mm-hmm. And then I <laughs> have to feel pity. Okay. And now I'm fearful that I'm going to be that jerk and poke my eyes out. Damn it. How do I get rid of this? How do I get rid of this? And, and this is the interesting thing. Uh, you know, we're, we're told, you know, well, you cathart it out. Well, how do you cathart it how, Where does the catharsis happen? When does it happen? This is a big problem. You know, Walter Benjamin asked this question. Is when does catharsis actually happen. You know, he started to think that it happened in the Seder play. It didn't happen in the play proper. You laughed it out of you. Hmm. Um, but when you start to go down this path, uh, you realize that catharsis is not, is a, is a, the, what fills you in this moment that needs to be catharted is a strong emotion. Uh, and it doesn't have to be fear. It could be wonder, you know, awe, you know, sometimes we, we see something and we're just in awe of it, and it fills us, and we don't have language for it. Uh, it. Terror, you know, this is what Heidegger says, you know, is that we have like 12 basic attunements, moods that we get into. Anxiety is, is his favorite. Boredom is another. Wonder is the most wondrous of these. Um, and they all, it's very hard to bring those moods into language. Mm -hmm. They can be felt profoundly and disturbingly, but in order to to deal with them, you feel compelled to put it into language. So I sort of take a Heideggerian view, or it's sort of by way of Freud, which is that the catharsis is you see something that disturbs you and you don't know how to articulate it and you go home and you talk to your, your lover or your best friend and you talk it out. And in the talking out, what was disturbing to you, you you suddenly are purged of this. You suddenly it's a talking cure in a way.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's said, the it's the it's the discussion after drinks that matters more than that. that's the that's the, yeah. that's the golden moment. It doesn't happen yeah, yeah. in the play; it happens
1: afterwards. And you know, um, Hannah Art has this wonderful observation where she says that you know if you talk about heroism, bravery, it'll start to make you brave. If you talk about hope, it can start to make you hopeful. You know, it won't last, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't last. But for a moment, you're talking about courage and you suddenly feel courageous. And so to me, Greek theater is exactly that. For a couple moments, you're completely disturbed. You don't know what to make of it all. You articulate it. You're purged of it. You're conscious of it. You've named it. You own it, and then you forget about it. And then you have to go back to the theater again to see it over and over again until you learn your, your lesson.
0: Now, part of uh, Aristotle's... Like, another another part of Aristotle's uh, sort of system of thought is when he... In, in the uh, Nicomachean Ethics, he talks about the sort of golden mean being the ethical ideal between these two extremes, you know, of, you know, excessively cowardly versus being excessively uh, risk-taking, you know, the golden mean between those is a proper amount of courage. Is that related to this idea that, that maybe part of what it's doing is you go to the theater, you feel these extreme emotions and then you kind of get it out of your system and you can, you can be, sort of more even keeled in your daily life as a kind of responsible citizen of the Athenian polity?
1: That I mean, anger management was a huge issue, you know, clearly, <laughs> for the Greeks, you know, clearly, <laughs> I mean, literally, the Iliad, you know, starts with, uh, with the line, you know, I sing a wrath, you know, uh, you know, um, this is the big problem is wrath, right? And at the very end of of the Iliad, the last image is of a horse bridle, you know, the idea of bridling one's passion. So, so you could say that, you know, one could be very reductive, you know, and sort of say that all Greek theater is anger management work. You know, Uh, I don't believe that, but I had a friend who used to say, I can name, you know, you know, there used to be this thing you're too young for it but uh, there used to be a show called Name That Tune and the whole thing was how many notes did it you need before you could name that tune you know yeah. I can do it in three notes I can do it in one note you know and so my friend you know could like get all these genres of theater or authors you know down to like two notes you know so like uh um uh, Chekhov would be live now you know that would be the the, the, the message the takeaway uh, Shakespeare would be see better right and then Greek theater would be be careful or or maybe be very very careful you know if you really want to, really want yeah. to do it um, and so so yeah there is an aspect of you know and this is where Sanskrit theater uh, becomes interesting because it's not as interested uh, in the modality in the in the attunement of of anxiety or terror, or fear, phobus, as the Greeks are. They're interested in another Heideggerian attunement, which is wonder. Um, you know, the the miracle of existence, the miracle of being, and and so so you know they want to put the audience in contact with that. You see that in Shakespeare too. You know that there's something very. If you read. Shakuntala um and then compare it it feels you know your your first comparison would be oh maybe Shakespeare's winter's tale you know um Mm -hmm. where where what the the late works of Shakespeare try to engender they move away from tragedy and they try to engender another state that's very hard to articulate or bring into words which is the wonder of existence um and so but but both the Greek theater and, and, and parts aspects of Sanskrit theater, which is a much more complicated and, and much more extensive, I mean, longer history of, 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 of development, uh, they're both interested in, in experiences that are hard to put into language. You see something, it moves you to, to the moment of the need to articulate it and that and then it, it takes you to the doorstep of articulation and says finish it finish it and then you have to name what you felt and the and the greeks are very interested in in naming death um and the and uh and sanskrit drama is very interested in naming life the miracle of life
0: well, Brian, I think that's a great note to end on. There's so much more to get to uh, in this book, but I, I want to leave something for the reader to discover on their own. Uh, thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts to talk oh, about pleasure. The Secret Life of Theater. This was really fun. Uh, the, uh, I uh,
1: really uh, enjoyed getting a chance to spend some time with you and, and uh, talk theater.
0: And could you, uh, you mentioned it a little bit before uh, we started recording, but could you tell us a little bit about the book that you have coming out uh, next year?
1: Uh, yeah, I have a book coming out in January uh, called um, uh, Staging the End of the World uh, um, Theater uh, uh, in the Time of of Climate uh, Change. And uh, it basically looks at, you know, theater has been interested in the end of the world since the world began. Uh, so Sanskrit theater, Greek theater, right away it's interested in the end of the world. And so this book just tries to walk you through, you know, the big epochs, you know, the... Um, and sort of show you all the ways the world has ended not to not to say that, and I'm making a very big distinction by saying world, not earth mm-hmm. you know an empire a uh, 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 you know might fall, a world might fall, but the earth remains, thankfully. We are now at a point where actually we're destroying not only our world but also the earth as well. So we're poised at a point where... Where um, the destruction of a world, it will be the destruction of our planet, which means the destruction of all life. Uh, so, but the it sounds like a like a big Debbie Downer book, but actually the thing <laughs> that's kind of beautiful about once you spend time with these plays is you realize that they're they're not about the end of the world. They're about the continuance of the world. Is mm-hmm. how do you what values, what things are necessary to save the things you love um and every epoch has a very beautiful insight into ways of preserving what is best in humanity um and that ultimately is what the book is about
0: well that sounds great we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that one uh, when it comes out next year oh you're very kind i would love to